Hi, thanks for joining us for Stock and Leaders Facebook Live event, Getting Real About Real Estate. Planning to purchase a home? Not sure where to start? Stock and Leader Real Estate Attorneys Peter Ruth and Dave Jones are here to answer your questions. Here's how this works. You'll post your question as a comment and we'll pass along to the guys to address. This session is intended to provide general information only and should not be interpreted as direct legal advice. If seeking legal advice, please consult one of our real estate attorneys at 717-846-9800. Hey everybody, I'm Peter Ruth. I'm an attorney at Stock and Leader in the Real Estate Department. And I'm Dave Jones, and I also work in the Real Estate Department. And we're here live with you guys today to hopefully give you some good answers to your real estate related questions. Uh, so we will be live, and any, any questions you guys have, feel free to, uh, to start them coming in. So uh, we do have one question, hopefully, that will tee off our uh, conversation today. And that question is, do I need a lawyer at settlement? What do you think, Dave? Well, I think that you don't need a lawyer at settlement by law. However, we believe that a lawyer at settlement can help you understand your documents more fully. If you have any legal questions about the mortgage, the note, or any of the ramifications thereof, you are able to ask us a question and we can answer it um, with pretty much good precision. Yeah. And I, I, the other thing to point out, a lot of people don't want to use an attorney at settlement because they're afraid they're going to have to pay additional attorney's fees. The way title insurance works in Pennsylvania is you, you pay a set premium based on your purchase price. And that premium covers your title company, whether or not that's in a, a law firm, uh, to basically do a title search, to conduct settlement, and then to issue a title insurance policy. That is an all-inclusive rate. So what I mean by that is you're not going to pay any additional amount for settlement above and beyond that unless you have some unique legal circumstances such as some additional documents the attorney would draft. So that all-inclusive rate is going to be the same whether or not you have an attorney at your settlement table or just a settlement agent who's not an attorney. So when the legal questions come up, you basically have built-in representation at the table for no additional cost. That's right. All right, any other questions coming up? We have one here. If I'm buying a house, do I need a lawyer to dispute property lines? That's, that's a tough question. Um, what do you think, Dave? Well, actually, in most instances, your lender will allow you to purchase an endorsement on title insurance to allow you to avoid having to do a survey. However, if you believe there is, in fact, a dispute with regard to your property lines, we would recommend that you engage a, a surveyor or an engineer to survey your property and determine where the property lines are. That's right, and a lot of times in your standard agreement of sale, you can actually elect a contingency concerning your boundary lines. So if you do elect that and it comes back that there are some discrepancies there, you ask the seller to have a survey performed or you have the option then of just purchasing the property and moving forward with the sale, understanding that you can get that survey rectified at the end of the day. So looks like we have a question that did come in. How important is mortgage pre-approval? Well, I'll let you take that one. All right. Hey, mortgage pre-approval, I'll tell you what. It really depends on whether or not you're working with a real estate agent. Um, on when, when I am representing a seller on a for sale by owner, uh, typically when an offer comes in from a buyer, one of the, main, the first things I ask for is going to be a pre-approval letter from the mortgage company. The reason being, I don't want to have to waste our time by, by going back and forth and having this person then submit an offer and failing to get qualified for a mortgage either due to credit score or you know an outstanding loan to, uh, to debt ratio. So, well, I, debt to I, income ratio, excuse me. I like to refer to it as your ticket to ride. It shows that you have the basic financial background to be able to 
purchase that house. That's right. So it gives you the, it gives the seller a good feeling inside and there that they are dealing with someone who has the ability to purchase your home and qualify for a mortgage. That's right. And if you're working with a with a, a real estate agent, nine times out of ten, if, if they're on the, the buyer's agency side, they're going to request you to at least have a pre-approval. The point being, it just makes your offer that much stronger to show that seller, hey, not only am I writing an offer for your, your, your asking price or a, a some purchase price, but I'm already pre-qualified up to that amount. So you know it, it hopefully will not be an issue. Not saying that issues can't arise after pre-qualification, but typically it's just going to make that, that offer much stronger when it comes into that seller. Any other questions? We have another question. All right. If I'm selling a house, do I need a lawyer to review the contract? Good question. What do you think, Dave? Well, I think that initially if you have a realtor involved, and they're using a standard Pennsylvania Association of Realtors form, that we are pretty comfortable with that format. However, just to cover yourself, you want to make sure that you have an attorney review it if you have any questions or don't understand anything in that agreement. That's right, yeah, and it really comes down to that realtor involvement again. Uh, the Pennsylvania Association of Realtors has put out kind of what's called a standard agreement of sale for the purchase of residential real estate. It, it, it is a very buyer-friendly contract, however, there are certain things that you can do if you're, represent, if, uh, if you're the seller to try to, to close as many of the loopholes that a buy, would allow a buyer to get out and to get their deposit money back. Um, so I think, you know, is it imperative? There are many people who buy property every day who write offers that never have an attorney look at the contract. Is it advisable? Probably, just in case you might have any questions depending on your familiarity with the contract and understanding what could happen if some series of events would, would play out that would prevent you from being able to buy the home, can you get your deposit back, and certain timelines that you can either expand or constrict mortgage uh, contingency period, uh, inspection contingencies, things along those lines. So it, I think it's important to have that done. It's not absolutely imperative, but probably a good idea. And if there are any unique circumstances about your deal that would be outside of the norm, I um, can't really think of anything off the top of my head, but if there are situations in that case where you, your realtor or yourself feel like there's something outside of the normal, you should probably take a look, or at least consider having an attorney take yeah. a look at that line. Yeah, one item that comes to mind would be uh, a tenant-occupied property, um, and depending on the language in the contract, and we've actually run into this issue, uh, if it is a tenant-occupied property, let's say the tenant might not have paid rent for the last two months. When you buy a tenant-occupied property, typically your contract is going to call for what's called a proration of rent. So, you know, if they paid rent in July and you're buying at July 15th, the, land, the, the seller is going to get half the month's rent, and then you as the purchaser, as the new landlord, are going to get the other half rent. But what if that tenant hasn't paid? Does the, does the landlord, the owner, still have an obligation to prorate as if it was paid? Sometimes we put language in there to protect our buyers to say that, because we don't want that issue to become the buyers. So that might be one issue where it's very important, again, kind of with the nuances associated with that. So it looks like we have another question from online. Uh, it says, if I'm privately listing my home to sell, what do I need to know? Well, I think the first thing you need to know is, what do you think your house is worth? So you should check with uh, comparable sales in the neighborhood or in the area to give you an idea of what you need to, uh, what you would like to ask for your house or how much it would be. The other thing you need to know is that you may have to fill out or would have to fill out a seller disclosure form. Um, 
Yeah, the seller's disclosure form is going to go over generally, you know, issues, what are called material defects with your property. So it's going to ask, you know, when's the last time you had a roof installed? Have you had any issues with leaking, water in the basement, things like that? So, you know, typically if we are representing a buyer and it's a true for sale by owner with no real estate agents involved, we're going to ask that seller to complete that seller's disclosure uh, to make sure that our buyer knows exactly what they're purchasing. I think. The other thing to keep in mind is um, you're going to be doing a lot of legwork if you're privately selling your home. Um, the one thing you want to keep in mind if you're interested in listing it privately, either through uh, some type of Craigslist or something else, um, you really need to protect your own safety. Okay? If somebody calls you and wants to come and look at the home, you want to make sure either you're going to meet this person in a public place or you're having somebody else at the home with you. There are many instances, even realtors are involved, uh, where, where safety becomes an issue. So it's very important to understand if you're doing this all on your own, there are some pitfalls, safety issues that you might run into. Yeah, the, and the fact is you're going to have to run through the listings and showings yourself. So people usually come and look at real estate in all hours. They want to look at it after work. They want to look at it over the weekend. So you may have those instances where you are the one that's kind of being put out and the one that has to do that work. So it's certainly okay to do your own private listing, but at the same time, though, you're doing a little more work. Yeah. Your realtor typically will say, take 6% six, uh, 6 of the sales price to do those things for you. Right, and exactly, and, and it really depends on the involvement. I'm sure that there are many people who have privately listed their home, negotiated a contract, there are no hiccups at all, they get the settlement and everything's good. Um, but for we really technically typically hear about the times when it doesn't go well. Um, in those instances, I think the real estate agent can really, I mean, they earn their commission. They put a lot of hard work in as far as marketing, putting it in, into a multiple listing service that you as a private entity, unless you are a licensed real estate agent, you don't have access to that. So you're gonna get a lot more offers, a lot more, more buzz that's generated about the property. There are different marketing avenues they can pursue. And they really do a great job to protect you from some of the pitfalls if you're not selling and buying properties you know, routinely that, that other people can fall into. So it's a good thing to have that. The other thing is you should have your uh, legal representative of review or be prepared to sign a, uh, execute a contract or, or draft a contract for you so that you have the legal terms in place to protect you as the seller and you as the buyer. That's right. Yeah, you never want to go online. You, there's, there are many uh, websites where you can go to print out an agreement of sale. There are many pitfalls that fall in. And local custom, for example, um, here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we have a transfer tax. Typically, it's split 50% on the buyer and 50% on the seller. Um, you know, you, you want to make sure you have that language in there because that's the local custom. Um, in, in some jurisdictions, the seller is responsible for preparing the deed, and that charge falls on the seller. In other areas, it's going to be on the buyer. Uh, so you, you want to make sure you're, you're not only aware of those customs um, in the locality, uh, but also just to be prepared for any other unusual um, items you might have in that contract. I think a great example would be what's called a, uh, a sale of home contingency. So if you currently live in a property that you know you're going to have to sell before you buy this property or can qualify to buy it, you're going to want to make sure you build in a contingency that says you don't have to buy that property until you sell your home. It's going to protect you and, and otherwise allow you to qualify for that mortgage and buy it. If you're doing this on your own, that might be something that slips your mind and you don't have that in the contract, that can come back to bite you in the end. So. All right, looks like we have a, uh, another question here. If I'm contracted on a house and the basement floods, does the seller fix it or do I fix it? That's a tough one. Well, it really depends on what your seller is willing to do. Your standard contract will say you can talk to the seller, the seller has the right to do that work and sell it to you at the price that's set forth in the agreement. 
the seller can decline to do that work and the benefit of the proceeds of the insurance that would cover that may or may not uh, put you back in the same place you would be or the seller could decline the work to do the work at all and you could buy the pro still buy the house and be stuck with those repairs to make. That's right. And I think the other thing that, that we always have in our agreements, but I think is almost never utilized, at least to my knowledge, is that a purchaser has an option of insuring their equitable interest. And what that means is they have an agreement of sale, they have the right to buy that property, they have an interest in that property at this point. If that seller would go out and sell it to somebody else, there could be a violation of that agreement. Um, so, you know, you do have the right to insure that. It's a cost-benefit analysis. You know, nine times out of ten, you're never going to know if the basement's going to flood. If they've never had flooding in the past, is it really worth your effort to purchase a policy that will cover that? Uh, you know, the answer is going to depend on the situation. But I think it's important to know. Um, you know, you can use that hopefully as leverage or as a negotiating tactic to say, look, water in the basement. I know you don't want to cover it. How about you knock your price down X amount, and we'll, we'll execute a change in terms, and we'll get the settlement that way. And not to muddy the waters, so to speak, but. The fact is, is floods are interesting because they may or may not be covered by homeowner's insurance and they may rather be covered by your flood insurance. So again, that's another area of law that the, uh, the stocking leader could help you with in navigating if that occurs. That's right, yep. So we have another question. Do I need to take the first offer on selling my home if it meets the asking price? This one is, is gonna depend. Now, I, I guess I should say working with a real estate agent, not working with a real estate agent. If you've hired an agent to list your home, typically you're gonna sign what's called an exclusive listing agreement. And that listing agreement basically says that agent has the right for the term of that agreement to exclusively sell your home. So even if, the, not through any of the actions of the agent really, you sold your home, you, you might owe that, that agent a commission. What it says in that agreement also is that if, if, that's, if that agent brings you, as the owner, a ready, willing, and able buyer to purchase the property upon the, the list price that you've agreed to list it, you might owe a commission to your real estate agent even if you reject that offer because they have fulfilled the terms of their obligations even though it didn't get to settlement. So you have to be careful. You want to look at that, uh, that listing contract. So that's on the realtor side. So Dave, what, what do you think about just being on the for sale by owner side? Well, actually, I think you need to look at the terms and conditions of the contract because just because they bring you that offering price or that list price, it doesn't mean that's what you were looking for in the first place. There could be additional things like a seller contribution, which may reduce the amount that you are going to achieve. There could be uh, different financing terms. There could be requirements to do upgrades or improvements or repairs. So you can take the contract as a whole and determine whether or not it is in fact the actual contract you want. So you do have some flexibility in that case. Yeah, and I think if, if you're worried about that being an issue and you, and you don't want to bind yourself, it kind of what I would call a belt and suspenders approach, any type of advertising you're doing on the property. So if you do list it on Craigslist or something like that, um, or even on Facebook, just make a simple mention of buyer or seller reserves the right to reject any and all offers. Uh, and I think even though you're marketing at a certain price, by having that language in there, you're reserving that right specifically. Um, and, and that way, you, you, even if those funky terms come in, and, or if they're not there, you can still say no. And I think that's another good point to Dave's, to Dave's point, is that if you get an offer that comes in, it's full asking price, no contingencies, but they don't want to settle until sometime next year, possibly. Again, that's going to factor into that decision. If you have plans to relocate, you know, you're going to buy a new property and you need to sell it, that would factor into your decision whether or not that, that would be a reasonable offer for you to accept. So just to get back to the question, um, you don't, you're not necessarily obligated to do that. Uh, there's nothing that a, a buyer, I think, could, and maybe Dave feels differently, but could sue you to require you to, to accept that offer. 
you just want to watch out if you're working with a realtor, you might have gotten into a position where you might may owe a commission uh, and you don't want to be in that position. So just, just be on the lookout for those issues. I think overall what I would say, Peter, is, is that it's not all about price, it's about the overall terms and conditions right. of your contract. Yep, good point. Another question, what could cause my settlement to get delayed? Oh my, how much time do you have? Yeah. Um, it, honestly, any one of a number of things we have honestly had, and this is a terrible case to, to bring up, but it, it, it happened. We had a seller uh, who the, the day of settlement, um, their uh, relative went to pick them up for settlement, and the seller was, was found to have passed away in the home that night. Um, so obviously that is an outlier that's not going to typically happen, uh, but there are just any number of events that could, could trigger a delay in settlement. And I think one of the major ones is financing, and Dave, I don't know if you have any comments I on that. I think that if from a financing standpoint, there are sometimes some things that get held up with either approvals, uh, underwriting, there are a number of things that could happen with required disclosures under the consumer protection law, or what we call TRID that you have to have three days advance notice of the settlement sheet, and if that somehow is held up, that could delay your settlement. Yeah, and the example about you know what happens if we're under contract and the basement floods, right there, that's a great example. That's gonna possibly delay settlement depending on how close you are. Uh, you know, if settlement is tomorrow and this issue happens, it's probably a good idea to extend that settlement date and get it out um, because you're going to have to work that issue out. But it could be any number of things. You know, the title company had an issue with processing documents, or there there could be uh, what, what's called an unsatisfied mortgage, maybe a prior owner unsatisfied mortgage that they need. The title company would need to either satisfy or obtain an indemnity. Um, there could be a whole just litany of issues that uh, um, that that could go on that's going to cause that delay in settlement. One item we often see is, is that an appraisal comes back and your appraisal comes back lower than what your purchase price is, in which case there's an instance where you have to go back and either have a reappraisal, there may have to be some repairs done, whatever the case may be. There are various things that can come about with regard to the appraisal that could delay settlement as well. Yeah, yeah good point. Another question just came in. Uh, what if I'm interested in purchasing a home that's up for private sale, so a for sale by owner, uh, what should my first steps be? Are there any important questions I should ask the seller. What do you think? Well, I think I think the first thing you should do is you should ask uh, if they have a seller disclosure form because that'll tell you the basic information about the house and repairs and maintenance of the house that we talked about earlier. That's right. So I yep. think that's a, a first a good first start. Obviously, you should ask what the list price is and whether or not there are any issues with the house that you need to know. Right. The other thing here, um, if you're if you're working with an agent, um, keep in mind that. Typically, a buyer agent who um, will not be receiving a commission on the sale, okay, most likely will not be able to get involved in the transaction on a for sale by owner. So if you as the buyer have a buyer agency agreement with a, with a, a licensed real estate agent, um, my first recommendation if you find a home like that, call the agent to let them know, hey, this is what's going on. Uh, I want to know whether or not you can be involved in this. The reason I say that if you have an exclusive buyer agency agreement and you buy a home during the term of that agreement, whether or not it was through the realtor, they, you might owe a commission or a set fee back to your agent. And, and you don't want to be on the receiving end of getting that letter saying, hey, I know I have an agency agreement, but I found this deal, I'm going to close on it myself and I'm not going to tell my realtor. You, you could run in violation of your, of your underlying buyer agency agreement. So make sure if you are working with a real estate agent that you get them involved at the front end. The other thing dealing with safety, again, it goes back to if it's listed on Craigslist and you call you know, the owner and they want you to come to the home to see it, things like that, just be very careful, okay? There are instances out there where there, there are scams going on and you wanna make sure that you're protected and that you're safe. I would recommend meet in public first, 
talk about it, and then once you're comfortable, go with somebody to the home to do an inspection, to do a walkthrough. Uh, but the process is very similar to, to when real estate agents are involved as far as drafting the agreement and, and presenting the terms. So, uh, One other thing is, is if you haven't already been pre-approved, you should contact your lender and determine whether or not you're pre-approved or approved, so to speak, with regard to the, the amount of the purchase price. Because obviously, you can't go shopping for more than what you can afford to buy. That's right. So that, I think that's a very important step in the process is to make sure that you can afford yeah. What you're looking at, and then once if, if you do have that meeting, you love the house, uh, you know, you get them to fill out the seller's disclosure to provide it to you, uh, and, and you want to move forward with it. Um, I think at that point, you need to bring in your attorney uh, or some other counsel in order to advise you on drafting that agreement of sale. Again, you don't want to be pulling these forms off the internet, you don't want to be in a position where uh, you know you get a template form, you sign on, and everybody's you know, everything's fine, but then something happens. And now you you don't have an agreement that's drafted it you know either fairly or in your favor that could be a huge pitfall so contact an attorney or somebody else that that could draft that agreement typically it's going to be an attorney if it's a legal document like that um, so that they can really protect your interest at that point then as um, if you're going to be the um, the seller in that case there's really not much involvement um, you know it's going to be the buyer putting the offer in and then coordinating settlement, either purchasing title insurance or, or not to get to settlement. If you're the buyer in that instance, once you have a signed agreement, what you want to do is take that to your attorney or settlement company, and at that point they can open up the file, start the title search. It's another thing you want to keep in mind in your contract, you want to have contingencies for title, that if you're not getting good title, you have an ability to get out of that contract. Sure. So our next question says, if I suspect that the seller did not disclose property damage, what are my options? That's well, and, and we'll start off again. I hate to keep uh, segregating it this way, but if you signed with a with an agent handling closing, you probably signed what's called the standard um, agreement of sale, the PAR form, the Pennsylvania Association of Realtors form. In that form, both parties, the seller and the buyer, have agreed that they're going to mediate their disputes arising from the contract. So what that means, if you're in York or Adams County, it's going to be the Realtors Association of York and Adams County or RAAC and they are gonna be the ones who will coordinate that, that mediation. So what you should do, first of all, don't go fixing the property damage, okay? A lot of people have a gut reaction that, oh wait, there's, some, there's an issue here, I'm just gonna go fix it, all right? Unless there's certain circumstances, such as a danger to your health, imminent danger to safety, or something along those lines, you could be spoilating evidence. And what I mean by that, you're not giving the seller an opportunity to get in and view what the damage is. So by doing that, by fixing it without allowing them or putting them on notice to come and look at it, you might have waived any liability that that seller might have had, and now you might be stuck with the, those repairs. Yeah, and I think it depends on whether or not this occurs before you close or after you close. If you think that's the case before you close, you should obviously ask for an inspection, have a, a contractor that you believe and you trust that would give you the answer to, do, to make an inspection of the property and, and verify whether or not you believe there is property damage there. At, at that point, once you get that response from your contractor or an engineer or whoever the case may be, you may have the ability to go back and renegotiate that price, ask them to repair, give you proof that the work was done or not done, a whole litany yeah. of options. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is if you, if you have to go to mediation, um, you know, it, it, there are some instances where it could be difficult to prove did, the, did the, the seller actually know about that? Now, we always fall back on the seller's disclosure, right? So the seller's disclosure was completed, and it said the seller didn't know about any you know, type of water penetration issues or anything going on. At that point, 
you would have to show that not only did the damage occur, but that the seller knew about it and might have falsified that document, okay? Because what we always say with the seller's disclosure, the seller has no duty to investigate or do any type of an inspection to answer that document. It is only what they know at, as of the date that they know it. So, you know, if you have someone who's never been up in the attic and they find out there's mold in the attic, I, I haven't gone in the attic for 20 years. How am I supposed to know there's mold? It gets into be a very hard case to, to litigate. But I think the first thing that you should do, look at your form. Does it require mediation? If it does, that's going to be your next step. You contact your local Realtors Association and you, you prepare for mediation. If you don't have a mediation clause, it's a possibility of having to sue in small claims court. But just to reiterate, don't fix the work unless it's a danger to health or safety, okay? And if it's not, make sure you put the, the seller on notice and give them a reasonable opportunity to come and inspect. Otherwise, you could be waiving any claim you might have against that seller. Yeah, and actually, I'll go back the other way. Uh, when you're going to buy a house, make sure you give it a good inspection, give it a good first pass. Right. So if you have any suspicions when you walk through, you know anything about the area, know anything about the house, you should take someone through that would have the ability, or, uh, whether it's a contractor, yeah. an engineer, some sort of expert, that could give you some ideas as to what to look for. Right, and that's a lot of the mediation cases when we ask them, well, did you get the seller's disclosure? Yes, I did. Did you look at it? Well, not really. That's your, really your key. You're gonna look through that. If it says that there was water damage, you're gonna wanna go down to the basement and find out where did it come in, what did they do to prevent it in the future? What did they do to remediate it? So that's really your ticket. It's up to the buyer to be satisfied with the condition of the property as represented in the seller's disclosure. So that's really your best ticket, as Dave said. Okay. I think All we right. have another question here with regard to flood zones. If I'm buying a house in a flood zone, do I have to have flood insurance? I'll take this one. <laughs> I live don't. next to a creek, and I do live in a flood zone. And the fact is, is, if you do live in a flood zone, your lender is going to require you to have flood insurance. The question is, is which, which type of flood zone you live in, whether you live in a floodway, flood zone, AX, whatever the case may be, there may be different levels of what kind of uh, flood insurance you have to have. It is somewhat expensive. There was a recent change in 2012, 2013 called the Bigger Waters Act, Bigger Waters II. It has uh, an effect on the cost of insurance, primarily because in the past, the federal government and other taxpayers were subsidizing the cost of flood insurance for everyone who lives in a flood zone. There's a move away from that so that you are, in fact, as an individual, insuring your risk under the flood insurance. That's right. So if you have that question, if you think you're in a flood zone, there are a couple ways to address that. You can get a flood determination. You can get a certification from an engineer that says your property is not in a flood zone. Your house is not in a flood zone. that may lessen your requirement. Yeah. So it is a great place. Um, to use experts that are involved with that, but uh, it is great living by the water. Sometimes you have some risks though. That's right. Yeah, and with the flood insurance, it's, you know, you might not have a lender. You might be putting a cash offer in, and, you know, you might say it's not worth my time to buy the flood insurance. I think it's very important to think in the long term, not only to protect against any damage, but when you go to sell the property then as well, maybe that buyer is going to require, you know, a, a loan. And at that point, they could have a flood insurance requirement from their lender. That could make it harder to market your property. So even if you say, hey, no lender, no flood insurance requirement, that could impede your ability to get a, a higher asking price or what you view to be a respectable asking price if there is, um, if it is located in a flood zone. So it looks like we have some questions. Uh, it says, is a, um, someone asks, is a home inspection worth it? I, yes. I always say yes, <laughs> yes and no. The fact is, yes it is, it's the biggest purchase you've ever received. 
or, or probably make in your life. So you want to make sure that you have someone with additional knowledge, particularly if you're not in the construction industry or you haven't purchased additional homes in the past. Um, you want to have the flood, the uh, homeowner inspection done so that someone can come in and say, here's a couple issues I would look at, gives you an outside perspective. Uh, the interesting thing about home inspections is typically there's a limitation on liability for the home inspectors. So if they miss something, the limit of their liability is the amount you paid for the home inspection. So if it was $250, $350, that's the limit of their liability. Right. So it's good in a lot of respects. And with anything else, I would tell you to research the different home inspectors that are out there and look for those folks that have a good track record, they have a good reputation to give you good information. That's right, and just keep in mind, these home inspections are not what I would call invasive inspections. You know, they're not gonna go in and cut out your drywall to make sure that there's nothing in the, between the rafters or anything like that and then put the drywall back up. They're just doing a visual, sometimes a little bit of invasive, you know, lifting windows up, making sure door jams are working, testing electrical outlets to make sure they're, they're live and operational. But they're not going to be do, you know, going up into the attic and scraping down things and disturbing property in order to find out is there really an issue here? So just, you know, I think it's absolutely important to have that if you're getting financing, your lender most likely is going to require you to, to get a home inspection. Um, and and it's, it's good to know, even if it's not a major issue, you get to know the property. You know, you get to know, hey, that, that window's a little jammed up. It's not enough where I'm gonna ask the seller to fix it, but I know after I move in, if I want the window to be operational, I might have to expend a little bit of an additional amount to do it. The other thing, just to piggyback on that, Go to your home inspection. You have no idea how many people that we deal with every day. They say, well, the home inspector missed this. All right, did you, did you see them? Did you go to the inspection? Well, no, I didn't. He did his job and he gave me a report. Go to the inspection. Not just to pinpoint what you want them to look at if you have the seller's disclosure. It just gives you an overall comfort level of, okay, somebody else's second set of eyes on this property. What do I need to know about? What do I need to be aware of? Um, very important to do that in our opinion. So, I, I agree. Yeah. Another question, what should I know as a first time home buyer? Okay, um, again, how much time do you have? Uh, it really depends, are you working with uh, a professional, a real estate agent, do you have an attorney, or are you just going out on, on your own? Um, I think the major things to keep in mind are, you know, your pre-qualifications, your, your pre-qualification letter. I always say, and my recommendation to clients is, have, have a tempered mind when it comes to those pre-qualifications. You wanna get pre-qualified for as much as you can. It can help your credit, okay? Because if you see, when I first started shopping, I was pre-qualified up to $300,000. There's no way I was buying a $300,000 house right out of law school, but it does help your credit. So just keep in mind, if you get a pre-qualification of that amount, doesn't mean you have to spend that amount. And in fact, you probably shouldn't. You want to come in where it's comfortable with your budget and you're going to be able to make those monthly payments. Yeah, and I think it's important to look long-term when you're a first-time home buyer. I would look at what school district you want to be in if you're going to have right. kids. You want to know where that is. You want to look at the tax base to see what your tax rates are in different areas. The city has a higher tax rate than somewhere outside the city. So those are things you want to keep in mind. Right. You want to look at potential resale values or resale opportunities. Again, there's some areas that are harder to resell a house after you move. Uh, I want to determine how long you want to stay in the house. Is this your starter house that you expect to step up to another house in five to seven years versus if it's your kind of forever house, you might take different looks at them. So there are some different practical, right. other than legal uh, implications right. or considerations that you want to have when you're the first time home buyer. If you're the first time home buyer, my guess is it's not your last house. So look for something that will suit your needs for five to seven yeah. years and then 
look for you'll know you look for something else after. And also try not to settle. Just to, to piggyback on that, you know, we have many people who come to settlement to sell their property to move on to retirement or who said, I bought this as a as a starter home and I've been there for forty years. So, you know, don't don't sell yourself short. Um, you know, the property should still meet most, if not all, of your punch list items that you want in a property to make it attractive to you. But, you know, don't settle, but at the same time, be understanding that, hey, if it truly is going to be your first time home buyer situation, a starter home, so to speak, you know, you can always upgrade and, um, and just be on the lookout. You know, there, you're going to get information from a thousand different people, your mortgage company, a title insurance company. If you're using an agent, maybe them, mom and dad, probably brothers, sisters. So you're going to be getting pulled in a whole bunch of different, uh, different directions. Just be sure that you're in, in control and you're in charge. You're going to be the one making the decision. It's going to be your home and you're going to be living there. So, Another question came in. What are some pros and cons of, uh, of a rent-to-own? Do you want to take the pros or the cons? <laughs> I, don't think, I think it matters. Yeah. Um, the fact of the matter is, is, is rent-to-own is a good situation in a lot of cases where you may not have good credit, you want to buy the house, you have a relationship with the owner of the house, a lot of times this comes out of a, a landlord-tenant relationship where you're a good tenant, you may not have great credit, so that lets you buy the house on a long-term sales agreement. It avoids some of the costs that you would otherwise have as a lender, uh, with a lender or a, um, transaction. The reason being is that you can avoid some of the appraisal costs, some of the document prep fees, so on and so forth. Um, it's not quite a formal relationship as you would have with a lender. Um, some of the cons are, Typically what it says, you'll put X number of dollars down, you'll pay rent or percentage towards your sales price over time, and if you walk away from that, or you default on that, you lose all your money that you have put in. Right. So there are some risks involved with the rental. And you wanna make sure that you're taking a hard look at your agreement. What I usually recommend, especially if a portion of the rental price you're paying every month is going towards your purchase price, it's always advisable, maybe not record your rent-to-own agreement or your installment sales agreement with the county records office, but I would record a memorandum. If I'm representing the buyer, I'm going to insist on that. The reason being, if you just have an agreement with the, with the seller that says, hey, I'm paying you rent and X amount of that is going towards the purchase price and you don't have any recorded document that shows that, that seller could go out tomorrow, enter into an agreement of sale with somebody else and sell the property to someone else and pocket your money. Now, you would have a right to go after him. But because you don't have any recorded memorandum of that rent-to-own agreement, that allows that seller to go out and do those type of things. So it's important to have that to protect the buyer. Um, I, I think, again, just to reiterate, I think Dave's cons are, are spot on. You just want to really check your agreement, okay? Usually we request that there's a certain number of days notice and that the landlord cannot terminate. Your, your landlord owner will not terminate the agreement as long as you are not in breach of that agreement because that's gonna protect your interest and make sure that, again, that seller can't, at the end of the day, you have one more, two more payments to make. Sorry, I'm terminating and I'm out of here keeping your money. So it's gonna keep, keep you out of trouble, hopefully. If I buy a home in another state, are there laws to consider? <laughs> yes, the laws of that state. Um, <laughs> I, I, I represent the Realtors Association of York and Adams County and I was teaching an, an orientation this morning and that was a question that came up. Attorneys, I think, are very good at, at deferring that to the local state where, uh, where you're going to be buying the home. You should not be receiving advice from an attorney on the purchase of a home or even any other professional on, on the purchase of a home or the sale of a home unless that person has regional competency in what I would say, so they're familiar with the area, and they're also licensed to practice their profession in that area, okay? Yeah, the fact of the matter is, is the purchase of property and property law is set each by each state. It's not nationalized for the most part. Right. 
there are some requirements for TRID and some, some closing requirements that are, are governed by national law, but for the most part, it's state-specific, so you want to talk to someone who has that knowledge in that state. Exactly. There's many pitfalls, and that's be wary of any attorney who's going to, uh, to give you free advice on, on a, uh, the laws of a different state. But even considering just Pennsylvania to Maryland, there are significant differences in terms of transfer tax, who pays what, how it's paid, um, and, and other certain items that can really be a pitfall that you don't want to fall into. So the best case scenario is contact an attorney in that state probably in the county or the locality where you're going to be purchasing the home because they're going to have, you know, not just um, um, the, the regional competency, but they're going to have relationships with individuals in that community, inspecting uh, inspection companies, mortgage companies, appraisal companies, and they're going to be able to take care of you. So that, I think that's, there are those laws that are, that are set to be uh, in that state you have to be careful of. Just don't say, oh, that's what happens in PA, so that has to happen in, in Maryland. States are free to set those laws, and they are drastically different sometimes. So. so thanks very much for your questions today. Um, we are going to wrap things up and we'd like you to come back on Monday. We're having another Q&A live uh, with regard to Peter. That's right. And actually, the, the, the head, there was a buzzer beater here. Uh, we had one more question that came in that okay. says, uh, how many homes should I look at before making an offer? Can I make multiple offers at once? Ooh, double double loaded question there. Uh, well, you can look at as many homes as you want. Um, I always joke, uh, when I was looking uh, with my wife, we looked at, for about a year, um, at, at various homes, at various different properties um, all throughout your county. Uh, and, and really, it was a little bit difficult to, um, you know, to hone in on what we all wanted and houses that, that hit our checklist. I also know there are people who go and they look at one home and they say, that's the home I want. And they make an offer that day. It really depends on your comfort level with the property, I think. We have time for one more question. I think we got a question in with regard to uh, school property taxes in Pennsylvania. And the question is, is do you think property taxes will be eliminated in Pennsylvania this year? Uh, quite honestly, I don't think that's going to happen. The problem is it's not elimination. It's, it's property tax or tax shift. So we have to find another place to make up the revenue that school property taxes otherwise generate. So I don't really think that's a possibility this year. There'll be some other tax that takes that place. Um, what benefits might be there for those who are looking to buy a new home in the area if they are eliminated? Again, I don't think they will. Obviously, if they are eliminated, you don't have to pay that, that property-related tax, but there, the proposal currently is that there will be some sort of income tax increase, some sort of uh, increase in sales tax, so there would be taxes in other ways that you would have to look at and see what that proposal is if and when it's passed. That's right. Yeah, so it's not going to be tax elimination, as Dave said. It's, it, you create a vacuum in many of the school districts' budgets um, that the state is, is unwilling and unable, basically, to, to step in and fund that. So they would have to come up with alternative methods. So I don't know. There might be benefits if people just don't. If the, the tax bill is going to be the main sticking issue, yeah, you might get rid of that tax bill. But at the same time, you could be paying a higher sales tax possibly higher earned income taxes or something along those lines that, that could spread out that gap of the loss of the property tax. So. And even under the current proposal, it does not eliminate property taxes entirely. If there's school debt and there are property taxes associated with that debt service, they would still remain as well. So it really depends on what school district. That's right. All right, and with that, I think uh, those are all the buzzer beaters we're going to answer today. Um, as Dave said, join us uh, Monday, 9 o'clock, I think, is when we go live uh, the next time. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you.